0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 13th, the Monday, not October, November the 13th, 2023. What is everybody obsessed with these days? Certainly uh, academics, historians and economists seem obsessed with equality. More and more books about it. More and more books about its absence. Uh, The New York Times had a piece last week, Economists ignored inequality for years. Now they can't stop talking about it. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we had my old friend, um, Branko Milanovic, the Serbian-American economist, one of the world's leading economic experts on inequality has a fascinating new book out visions of inequality from the french revolution to the end of the cold war we talked a little bit of politics um but interestingly enough when i asked him about politics he said well you really got to talk to this guy um darren mcmahon a historian at dartmouth because he has a book out focusing on the politics of Inequality, Inequality. Uh, It's called The Equality, The History of an Elusive Idea, and um, uh, Branko was generous enough to introduce me to Darren McMahon, so here we are. Darren, why is everybody obsessed with equality? It's like, uh, 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 this is my old joke, and I apologize to long-time viewers, they've heard it before. Uh, You wait. It's like waiting for London buses or revolutions in Eastern Europe. None come for ages and then they all come at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I would say that actually people are obsessed with inequality, and uh, they're obsessed with it because it's everywhere. Uh, we see it all over the place now. Um, and so when I started to write this book on the history of equality, people kept confusing my subject with its opposite, with inequality. And, you know, they changed the title of the lecture I was giving from the history of equality to the history of inequality. So I'm not so sure that people are obsessed with equality, maybe with its absence. And that's, of course, what draws our attention and drew my attention to this this subject. Oh. Now,
0: isn't that just a semantic distinction? I mean, if you're writing about equality, you're interested in inequality. And if you're writing about inequality, you're interested in equality.
1: Well, that that's certainly true. But I, I think that, you know, the, the point of departure uh, is important. We live at a time of a kind of uh, what the, the, the British sociologist Mike Savage calls an inequality paradigm. And we look, and see inequality everywhere. We write books on its history for thousands and thousands of years. And I don't think we focus enough on equality itself, uh, which, as the title of the book suggests, is something of an elusive idea. And so um, its very absence, I think, then can open a discussion uh, about equality itself, which forces us to, to re-examine it. And that's what I've, I've tried to do here.
0: As you uh, suggested, Darren, uh, the subtitle of the book is the history of an elusive idea. Is that a euphemism for suggesting that it you can't quite capture it or we can't mm. ca- capture it? Um, an elusive idea is one that um, is hard to pin down. Is that because of the idea itself? Or maybe it's just by definition
1: hard to pin down. I think it's 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 hard to pin down. And I think it's in part hard to pin down because we're of two minds about it one of the points that I, I try to make in the book is that human beings are fundamentally conflicted about equality. We, we want it uh, and there are parts of our, 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 our history and our ancestry that make us want it, make us want fairness, make us want pro-social values, make us want uh, reciprocity, but then there are fundamental parts of us that don't want it, that want inequality, that want hierarchy, that want status and preferment, and uh, we're torn about these two things, and I think that's one of the reasons why the idea itself remains uh, difficult to grasp.
0: What about you? Uh, when you look at your bio on Dartmouth, you teach at Dartmouth College, one of the top Ivy League schools in, in the world. Um, when you look at your page at Dartmouth, you look a little bit, well, you you look like a rock star anyway, but you've got a particularly rock star photo there. You... You note that you you were awarded one of your books, Best Books of the Year, for 2006. You're a, a star. Are you as conflicted personally as everybody else? Presumably, you want to be less equal than your other historians. You want your books and books like Equality to sell more than other historians?
1: Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's amazing what they can do doctoring photos now, Um <laughs> Yeah, I, this is just it. We all want status, right? We want preferment in the eyes of others, and we strive for it. And so one of the points I make in the book is that status competition goes on everywhere. In the most equal place you can imagine, people are competing for status, and I'm no exception to that. I uh, work hard and, and and want accolades and success and recognition for what I do. Um, at the same time, I like to think I'm self-conscious enough about, uh, about that to not assume that uh, because I might win an award... Uh, uh, or, or write a decent book that makes me somehow fundamentally better than other people or deserving of more rights or, or, or benefits or the like. and so um, but, but you're absolutely right to point this out that this is a, a kind of case of, of our own ambivalence uh, about about the very idea.
0: Your book Equality is an intellectual history of this elusive idea. The person who comes to mind, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, the person who captured all the contradictions, all the pain, all the elusivity, if there's such a word of it, is, is Rousseau seems mm. to, he seems to sort of open the chapter on modernity on equality. Is there
1: some truth to that? Absolutely. I mean, I think Rousseau with with Thomas Hobbes is is, is one of the most powerful psychologists, political psychologists uh, that we have. Uh, and he captures this same ambivalence, I think perfectly. He, he understands that uh, human beings long for recognition in the eyes of others. Um, that we uh, uh, can that longing can be distorted by our social arrangements, and so it can take a, a healthy regard for the self, what he calls the amour de soi, and pervert it and make it a self-love, amour propre, uh, that um, is, is 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 solipsistic and, and egoistic. Um, and depending on the circumstances in the society around us, human beings will skew one way or the other. He sees modern society as exacerbating our worst uh, instincts and selfishness. And therefore, he he thinks that we need to change society profoundly in order to kind of reshape human beings and and give them uh, a, a different orientation to themselves and, and to others as well.
0: I want to get to Hobbes' Leviathan later because it's also extremely interesting. But as, for Rousseau, as one of the fathers, if that's the right word, of modernity, it, it, it seems that on the one hand, he was looking forward into this world of political equality, of the general will, which some people suggest is a father of both communism and fascism. And on the other hand, a certain kind of nostalgia for, the, for pre-modernity, for your history of Equality. Are you like Rousseau equally nostalgic for pre-modernity?
1: I'm not. Uh, you know, I've experienced dental pain and watched my wife, you know, suffer in childbirth, and I like all the the, the feature comforts of uh, of modern civilization. But I will confess to sharing. Um, uh, something of a nostalgia for what may even be just a fantasy. In Rousseau's case, I think that was probably the case, for a kind of closer proximity to fellow human beings, for uh, intimate uh, relationships, for uh, a kind of culture in which people look out for one another and care for one another and and share things together. Uh, And in a big, anonymous, you know, 21st century uh, society, it's easy to feel that longing and to, to want to recover. And I think Rousseau was one of the first people to intuit that to to feel it profoundly and then share it in his beautiful prose and he he captured something that modern societies for all their benefits separate our uh, uh each other from from one another and and they separate us from ourselves as well and there's a loss entailed in moving moving forward
0: yeah on the one hand he's nostalgic for community on the other hand he seems one of the first examples of the fully developed modern self with all its complexities, with all its strengths and weaknesses. It's a fascinating conversation. We are speaking with Darren McMahon, um, M McMahon. Uh, What does the M stand for, Darren?
1: It stands for Michael. (laughs) Uh,
0: Very nice. Uh, Author, equality, the history of an elusive idea. Um, Darren, you mentioned Hobbes. How does Hobbes contribute to this? Um, We had another very interesting historian on the show last week, uh, John Gray. I'm sure you're familiar Mm. with his work. He has a new book out, The New Leviathan, Thoughts After Liberalism, in which he suggests we're going back to Hobbes. But Hobbes, in a way, without the equality, Was it, it seems as if Hobbes was dragged to the equality table. He didn't much care for it but it was the only way he could think of to maintain peace and security in the modern age. Is there any truth
1: to that? I think there is, you know, and I, I'll give a shout out to another person who's working on this subject right now, my colleague at Oxford, Theresa uh, uh who will have a book coming out next year on the kind of political thought uh, well, Now you,
0: you put that on record, you, I'm going <laughs> to nag you to get her on You're going to have to introduce a- absolutely. her. Absolutely,
1: and she's, she's wonderful in every possible way, but she's focusing specifically on the 17th century, and she's written uh, a, a wonderful article uh, on Hobbes' inequality, in which she points out that, you know, that famous picture uh, on the cover of Leviathan, which shows uh, the king with his scepter and then his body composed of all these little bodies, mm. um, that all the men in the picture are wearing hats, um, and this may not seem you know, all that significant to you, but uh, in the 17th century, to refuse to pay hat honor to your uh, superiors was a a real social infraction. And what she points out there is that the men keeping their hats on are not doing due diligence to the Leviathan. And that speaks to precisely what you talk about. I mean, Palms, on the one hand, is a defender of uh, absolute monarchy, uh, and he's he's fighting the Puritans and Republicans uh, in 17th century England. uh, And he puts forth this what he thinks of as an apology for absolute monarchy, but it starts with the premise that all are created equal. Now, for Hobbes, that leads to all kinds of problems. Equals. Uh have equal ability to kill one another, uh, and that leads to struggles, and so you need to impose uh, authority over that, and, and he builds this up to then justify a kind of uh, absolutist state. But his point of departure is one that was very worrisome to uh, monarchists in the 17th century who didn't believe that people were equal at all. And so in that respect, Hobbes is very much a kind of modern figure who, who gestures towards a, a new point of departure, and that is that human beings, um, at least initially, are uh, equal in their capacities and rights.
0: Let's go back a little bit for a moment before Hobbes, well before Hobbes, to the work of uh, David Graeber, who unfortunately recently departed. Um, His last book, which he co-authored with an English uh, anthropologist, David Wengra, is The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, which seems to suggest, I, I have to admit, I bought the book, I haven't read the whole thing. It's a big book. But it seems to me to suggest that the history of mankind of homo sapiens is actually more equal than we think is that a fair analysis of the Graeber book and is there some truth to that do you think
1: well i certainly uh would agree with those people who uh make the claim that our our earliest ancestors prior to the neolithic revolution prior to the agricultural revolution and when human beings settled down and started to live in cities and, and 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 have governments that prior to that point, there's I think a strong claim to be made that they lived in in, in relatively equal uh, ways, uh, if only because they didn't accumulate a lot, and so you know they they were moving around as hunter gatherers, and they had to carry everything they owned on their back, and you can't carry that much on your back, and so the distinctions between them were not great. Now, uh, Graber and Wengrow. Um, actually take issue with a a kind of hypostatized version of that claim that says, oh, that our our ancestors were all alike and they were all equal and they point out that actually uh, there are more uh, distinctions and differences in in early societies than uh, some people have have claimed and and I think they're right about that, uh, but I still think that the general point that uh, that our Paleolithic hunter gatherer ancestors lived with uh, relative equality is, um, is is convincing and uh, uh, and that I, I I kind of trot out in my first first chapter of the book.
0: To, to go back to Rousseau, I mean, he famously said, "Of course, uh, we were born free, and everywhere we're in chains because of property." Does that does that support rousseau's argument that we were equal until we invented the concept of ownership or of property
1: yeah that's that's uh, that's rousseau's claim and i i actually think you know rousseau is an incredibly intuitive guy now wengro and, and graber take issue with rousseau and they think that um that 18th century view that that the state of nature was all equal is a kind of distortion uh, and a reflection of a highly unequal society, and they want to trace the origins of thinking about equality to indigenous societies in the New World in the 17th and 18th centuries, which I think is a really interesting claim. Um, I don't agree with their, their broader point, though, that um, that concepts of equality don't exist uh, in, in prior to the 17th or 18th century. And one of the things I try to show is actually there are very uh, many self-conscious claims uh, to uh, equality developed in and in, in Western and indeed global uh, traditions, well prior to the seventeenth and eighteenth century. But yes, I think that Rousseau's basic insight that um, property uh, and uh, its accumulation brings with it uh, competitions uh, that ultimately uh, get get um, frozen and, and 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 solidified and and justify uh, massive domination. Uh, you know, human beings. Uh, have capacity for equality we also have the capacity to dominate uh, our fellow human beings in ways that you just don't see in the animal kingdom we make uh, you know uh, chimpanzees and silverback gorillas are some of our closest ancestors look like amateurs when it comes to dominating uh, our fellow men and women
0: you spend one chapter at least in part 2 of the early part of the book talking about antiquity and ancient greece in particular these kind of books would never be complete without at least a chapter or two on greece and rome were the greeks and romans did they have a, a particularly interesting take on on the idea or the ideal i mean you 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 use this word idea rather than mm-hmm. ideal and i'm sure you struggled on whether to call it an idea or an ideal i I don't remember from my, we've had many conversations on antiquity, obviously Aristotle, Plato, uh, Socrates. I guess Plato was probably the most interested in the idea of equality, was he?
1: Well, I mean, he is and he isn't. You know, his, his republic, of course, is this famously stratified place founded upon a noble lie that citizens are fundamentally distinct. Some have gold in their souls and some silver and the like. Um, he does open space for thinking about gender equality in a way that many of his fellows didn't. And that's kind of interesting. And he does have a view as my um, uh, colleague, David Lay Williams, who also will have a book coming out soon. I'll put a plug oh, in. not um, a- on the kind of the, the political history of ideas of equality. And he he has a chapter on Plato in which he, he points out that actually Plato has a lot to say about economic inequality uh, and its, and its dangers uh, capacity to produce civil war. Um, but back to the general question about equality in the Greek world, y- you know, you're absolutely right. Books like this always have to have a chapter on the Greeks uh, and, and maybe the Romans. And I, I do take pains to point out that I'm using the Greeks as a kind of stand-in. We now know, and there's been lots of good work on this, that there's nothing uniquely Western about democracy and democratic ideals uh, that many uh, ancient societies develop democratic practices. We just happen to know a lot more about about the ancient Greeks because they left this body of writings. And and in fact, many uh, of the ancient Greeks uh, are really, really interested in notions of equality, particularly the Athenians uh, who take this farther than others, but but they're not alone. Um, uh, What's interesting to me about their ideas of equality is how they set a precedent that you see play out over and over again. Um, For the Athenians, the most democratic of of the ancient Greek city-states, equality is uh, something for equals. And and their point of departure is that not all are equals, right? Uh, Those who make up the polis, the Athenian polis at the height of democracy, don't include women, don't include resident aliens, uh, don't include some of the lowest strata of society, don't include slaves. And so uh, those who make up the Inner circle, the circle of equals, are privileged uh, privileged beings, and so equality serves for the ancient Greeks as a hierarchical premise. It's the point of departure to establish who equals are and who the unequals are, and those two uh, in the history, subsequent history of uh, thinking about equality, almost always go together in ways that I think we've tended to to uh, cast aside or ignore.
0: And that's the elusive idea: the equality as a as you put it, equality as a hierarchical premise. Does that suggest that those, particularly in terms of political theory, those who were nostalgic or are nostalgic for the ideal of the polis, um, many of them focusing on the work of Aristotle, Hannah Arendt, of course, comes to mind, are they supporters of equality or of something else? Because it seems a contradiction in terms to talk about equality as a hierarchical premise.
1: It seems a a contradiction in terms to us, but I think that's in part because we uh, are confused about one, what equality is, and two, what hierarchy is. This is another point that I make in the book. Mm. I mean, you know, Hierarchy is a word that we almost always use as a pejorative, and we're uncomfortable talking about it in democratic societies where most people are ostensibly equal. Um, it is, it's is—it's true it's a Christian word uh, initially, and I developed that kind of sacred order. Um, but the hierarchy, and I'm going back to Max Weber here, the great German sociologist, is really just a, a way and a socially agreed-upon way of quoting status, resources, uh, and the like. Uh, and. Weber would, would juxtapose hierarchy with domination, which is not socially agreed upon. Now, there can be a thin line between the two. Hierarchy and domination can be closely lied. But in general, um, when you have a hierarchy, people agree, okay, we're going to um, accrue uh, promotion status on the basis of these criteria. And most people, they might grumble a little bit at the water cooler about it, but they basically uh, accept that situation. And so, um, you know, equality claims can coexist quite comfortably with hierarchy. The best Example of this uh, is is the 18th century America and France these new orders that are brought into being right just like it says on the one dollar bill and nos ordem um, uh, secularum the, a new order of the century and what is that new order well it's founded uh, ostensibly on the premise that um, all are created equal and that all are equal before the law uh, that they shouldn't be treated special because of their aristocratic lineage or um, you know who their father was um, but they're going to be uh, distinguished and the order will be established now on the basis of merit. Okay. A meritocracy is what comes into being in the 18th century. And that is just a new form of hierarchy. It's measuring according to different standards. Um, and when a meritocracy works well, and it I don't think does today, but when it does, um, many people say, hey, that's only just and fair. The the, the, the people who work the hardest and, and and do the best should should get the prizes.
0: And of course, uh, many many critics of meritocracy these days. Could we reverse this in terms of the Middle Ages? I mean, this is a huge subject, Darren, mm-hmm. and your book covers a lot of material. You talk about equality as a hierarchical premise in the, the 18th century and maybe in antiquity. What about the Middle Ages? Could we think of it as hierarchy as an as an egalitarian premise where? everyone was part in in ideal terms in theoretical terms everyone was part of a greater whole but they all had places within it
1: yeah this is really interesting um and it and it actually takes us to a kind of christian conception of equality so right. i have to point out um that you know that that phrase that jefferson invokes in the declaration of independence all men are created equal you know americans always think oh how a radical new idea comes into being in the 18th century etc the truth is that the all men are created equals is a total cliche in the 18th century, and Jefferson and and his colleagues knew it. I mean, he he himself was, you know, trying to articulate what he thought of as the common sense of the age that had been bequeathed by the ages. The Stoics uh, talk at great length about, uh, you know, the, the equal creation uh, of humanity, our, our our equal rights, even. They don't use that, that term, but uh, a similar conception. It gets taken into Roman law. Uh, it gets put down into the Roman uh, digest uh, uh, by the codex that Justinian puts together. Um, and then it's picked up by all the church fathers. So I, I cite uh, Pope Gregory the Great in the sixth century who who writes, you know, omnis hominis iqualis uh, sunt, all men are equal or all men are created equal even. He says this in this very same breath that he's talking about slavery (laughs) and he has no intention to uh, overthrow uh, uh, slavery uh, any more than than did the Roman uh, jurist on whom he was drawing. His view uh, is that God brought human beings into the world in order uh, to be equal, but then they sinned, they fell. And because of that, uh, in the order in which we find ourselves, we're assigned certain places. He says there's a kind of mysterious logic to uh, God's plan but that God himself is indifferent to our place in the world. He's indifferent to the fact that you're an aristocrat and I'm a peasant. He's indifferent to the fact that you're a man and I'm a, a woman and so on and so forth. And those those things will be reconciled in the next life. But in this life, we need to get on with it. And I think you're right that in some level, it accords a certain kind of equal, um, uh, what, dignity, to ordinary human beings as God's children, while also justifying their unequal places in the world as we live it.
0: Yeah, it's the Roman version of a, an elusive idea. And maybe we'll come to it later as America becomes more and more feudal. It was supposed to be <sighs> yeah. the answer to feudalism, but maybe we can borrow from some of the ideas from the church in terms of making sense of contemporary America. We are talking with Darren McMahon. Fascinating new history, equality, the history of an elusive idea. I want to thank uh, the magazine that's helped bring this very high-quality product and very high-quality guests, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Um, I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we're going to be back with Darren to talk more about equality in the uh, post-18th century world. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Darren McMahon, the author of Equality, the History of an Elusive Idea. Darren, we're up to the 19th century, uh, the century, of course, of Marx and of industrialization. We did a show a few weeks ago with Simon Johnson, the co-author of a really interesting new book called Power and Progress, A Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. But it's also a book about inequality what happened in the 19th century in your view and maybe correct me if i'm wrong to explode everything was it technology was it capitalism was it democracy or was it a mix of all of these things
1: yeah those are uh, all i think on the table and one of the things that happens is that of course europe and and the new europe's and its satellites get vastly richer uh Economists talk about the great divergence that happens at the end of the 18th century forward when, when the West departs from uh, the rest of the world in ways that it were unprecedented, right? Uh, prior to the 18th century, the, the wealthiest places on the planet were China and India, and they weren't vastly, vastly wealthier than uh, everyone else—just wealthier. But this uh, is changed in the 19th century, and with that increase in wealth, uh, you get uh, inequalities that open up, uh, pretty, pretty astounding ones. And so, if you look at uh, income and wealth inequality in um, in France and England and in the United States and other places from the 18th century forward, you'll see it shooting up, uh, reaching a high point just before the first, first World War at the very same time that Europe uh, and, and the West in general is surging ahead of the rest of the world and, of course, dominating them through imperialism. So uh, there's an irony here in that, you know, the 18th century proclaims equality as this new ideal for humanity at the very same time that vast inequalities are opening up uh, between those proclaiming equality and, and the rest of the world.
0: What about the role of of nationalism in all this? I'm looking forward to the new movie I'm going to see in a couple of weeks when it comes out here, Mm. Ridley Scott's Napoleon. What does the French Revolution, what role intellectually, politically does it play and what role does Napoleon himself play in the emergence of nationalism, which in many ways, of course, he and the nation state, which in many ways he was a champion of, even if he was himself a, a, a colonialist as well?
1: Sure. Um, Well, lots on the table. I have a whole chapter on the French Revolution, and uh, I was actually trained as a French revolutionary historian by uh, an author of a a biography on Napoleon, David Bell. so um, uh, plenty to say, but let me let me say just a couple things vis-a-vis Napoleon. I mean, um, and, and you're going to see gonna, the film, you're going to see the movie, Darren. Absolutely. I'm going to. I'm going to go on opening night with my son. You know, it has to be has to be done. I'm not a great fan of Napoleon, I uh, have to say. But uh, look, you got to see this film. So uh, I will. Um, Napoleon puts an end to the French Revolution in many ways. You know, there's a debate whether he continues it or uh, uh, carries it on. I think in many ways he puts an end to it. He puts an end to the upheaval, and he puts the en- an end to what is seen as this really dangerous uh, effort to level all. And so. Um, the, the The figure that uh, controls the the chapter on the French Revolution for me is is that of of leveling uh, and and the idea of the guillotine uh, as the scythe of equality that literally will lop off the heads of those who, who 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 dare to be higher than higher than the rest. And this is seen as as dangerous, as misshapen uh, as, as as perverting society, and Napoleon puts an end to that, of course, he brings back the aristocracy, he creates a new one, even if he doesn't give them their privileges. And that's kind of interesting. There's still a view here of equality before the law. He doesn't take the word equality off the, the sides of buildings and whatnot. So he keeps certain things, uh, but, but he tries to put the genie uh, back in, in the bottle and uh, in, in many ways, largely successfully, at least in the, in the short to near term. He also reinforces a message, and I think this is one of the longer term uh, consequences of the French Revolution, that liberty and equality are opposed. Um, We just saw the ad for the the journal Liberties. And many people in the 19th century and their famous theorists here, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and others, would argue that liberty and equality are at odds that um, that if you uh, want uh, liberty, then uh, equality will uh, put curbs on it or uh, you know uh, misshape it. Uh, and if you if you try for equality, you're going to have to uh, impede yeah. liberty. Uh, yeah, that's
0: not a new. I mean, Machiavelli wrote that. I mean, and and of course the, the the ancients also.
1: Well, they they don't actually. The the ancients thought of liberty and equality as going together. And indeed, uh, when Rousseau says in the 18th century that. Uh, that equality is the is the kind of point of departure for liberty, he's really re-articulating an ancient notion. And I would argue that Machiavelli makes a similar claim okay. that, um, that, that liberty is non-domination in this ancient view, right? Uh, your, your capacity not to be dominated or uh, it, it, enslaved or, or put into servitude by another. Um, and if if somebody is not equal to you, they have the capacity then to control you in ways. And so you have to have equality before you can have liberty in this ancient view. Those ideas get juxtaposed in the French Revolution uh, at a time when, of course, you know the Jacobins are pursuing pretty um, aggressive policies to, uh, to 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 carry out greater equality in society. They're also impeding liberties in a massive way, including by. Uh, you know, cutting people's heads off, and so coming out of the French Revolution, those two things are, are seen as in opposition, and I think that's kind of structured the way that we've tended to think about uh, the two concepts ever since, in ways that that arguably are distorting.
0: You noted earlier that you're not a big fan of Napoleon. Who are you a big fan of when it comes to <laughs> these ideas of liberty? Well, you 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 talked about leveling. Are you a fan, for example, of the of the Levelers? Um, who played an important and interesting role in the English revolution? Um,
1: I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the levelers either. I will have to say, although I think they're super interesting. I don't, I don't, you know, I tend to, as, as a historian, not uh, choose sides uh, and try to look at this, uh, you know, matters. In, yeah, but there in must history. be some
0: groups you like more than others. you you made it clear you don't like Napoleon.
1: I think that, I think that uh, Liberty is, hugely important and at the end of the day I'm uh, uh, I, I'm kind of you know more in favor of liberty than anything else um, but I would would argue in the same breath that uh, if you want and you're really interested in liberty then equality needs to be important for you So who,
0: who for you well, are I think the, the, I think, um, the, the best uh, theorists of Equality in the modern. Yeah,
1: well, I think Tocqueville is undeniably an important theorist of equality, uh, and he's somebody, of course, who fears equality in some ways, but sees it as coming and a, as a natural part of modern society and tries to think about ways that equality and liberty can be reconciled. And to me, that's the task. Uh, it's the, the difficult task, and I think he's he's very good uh, at doing that. Um, look, I'm, I'm not a full-blown blown Rousseauian, but the older I get, the more... Uh, uh, the, I, I, I admire Rousseau and his um, uh, his psychological insight, his um, his 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 breadth and so forth. And so I think of Rousseau in some ways as a, uh, an intellectual hero, but I have others.
0: It's interesting you mentioned uh, de Tocqueville. Um, another of the books that are coming out on inequality is Angus or equality. Angus Deaton, who's been on the show before he won the Nobel Prize, The Princeton Economist. He has a new book out. I'm going to get him on the show. Economics in America, of course, borrowing from democracy in America, an immigrant economist explores the land of inequality. Let's let's fast forward. There's so much here, um, mm. and we could spend hours dealing with it. But let's fast forward to today. Would the Tocqueville, and would he be profoundly troubled with what he sees if he came back now? And I've always thought this. If he came back now and he didn't know he was in America or France, would you imagine that the America of 2023 is more like the France of the early 19th century than the America he saw?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, you know, it's funny when you pointed to Angus Deaton there, I thought of another hero who actually is very interesting on the question of equality. And that's Adam Smith. And people don't yeah. always appreciate that. But Branko Milanovic was on. And Branko does a music. great job
0: saving, saving Smith from the, from the neoliberals.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think, you know, Smith is another rich thinker here. But your question about Tocqueville is really to the point. So I, I have a chapter on, on Marx and the socialist tradition. And one, one of the points I make there is that Marx doesn't really like equality very much. And that's um, kind of interesting and something that people don't always appreciate. Um, but like Marx, Tocqueville sees uh, a danger on the horizon in America and uh, other uh, rapidly industrializing places. And that is the emergence of a new aristocracy based on wealth. Uh, and Tocqueville calls this out in democracy in America, specifically with regard to the United States. And he says, if I can anticipate or envision a time in the future when inequality will become again a, a massive problem, it will because of this, it will be because of the, the rise of a new aristocracy. And and, and Tocqueville says that as somebody who really believes that there's a kind of providential logic to human history and that we're actually getting more and more equal, but that could only be just disrupted, he says, by this emergence of a new, uh, a kind of new predatory class. And I think that's happened. Uh, and I think if you look right and look left, or or look just a little south from where you are in San Francisco, you'll see that uh, everywhere. And it's it's not good for the country.
0: Yeah, it's not just south. Look out of my window. You noted uh, <laughs> you you threw a bomb, uh, Darren, but. We we got to let it explode. You said that Marx wasn't a great fan of equality. What do you mean by that? Because a lot of people yeah. would be surprised with that observation.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually um, it's very clear in his work. So um, a couple things to say. Uh, first of all, Marx and Engels, and and their I think closest readers, uh, people like Lenin and Stalin later. Um, see uh, equality as a kind of product of an earlier time in human history. And, and in fact, uh, Marx and Engels in the German ideology use the word uh, an illusion. It's an illusion of the epic. In part, it's an illusion like all ideas that serve to justify or reify the social relations on the ground. And so to some degree, equality is for Marx and Engels, uh, a kind of bourgeois ideal that's, uh, you know, masks the underlying um, uh, domination. But it's they don't just level that critique at, at, at liberals, at classical liberals, as you would expect. They level it at uh, socialists as well. On the one hand, they take um, uh, you know take aim at the the utopian socialist tradition, and they uh, accuse it of uh, what they call gleichmacherei, a sort of you know leveling or equality making, uh, which they say see is is kind of juvenile and and not serious. Um, but then they also direct it uh, at the uh, Mainstream socialist movement in the nineteenth century. So Goethe's, uh, sorry, um, Marx's famous critique of the Goethe program. Goethe being a city in in Thuringia in Germany that held the party congress for the German Social Democratic Party in uh, uh, in the nineteenth century. They issued this program saying that we're aiming to eradicate all social and political uh, inequality, and Marx and Engels read this and they it's ridiculous. And and Marx writes a critique, and he says, you know, the aim of of what we're up to is the abolition of uh, class distinction, the abolition of class, but not inequality. And in fact, if you think about that famous Marxian phrase, to each according to their abilities, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, um, implicit in that is the idea that human beings aren't equal. And Marx says, you know, that's a kind of pure notion to think that human beings are equal in their capacities or in their needs. And there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever that, in his view of what the communist future will bring, material equality or, or fairness is going to be part of it. And it's just simply a misnomer.
0: So you're suggesting then that Stalin and his inegalitarian communism comes straight out of Marx?
1: Well, look, I mean, this is a, a complicated question. I mean, I, we were talking well, earlier. You, you brought up Stalin earlier. Yeah. I think in this respect, especially historians I think it's
0: not use Stalin and Marx in the same sentence unless sure. they're distinguishing them.
1: Well, we were talking earlier, I was educated right across the bay at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh one of my teachers, Mark <laughs> Maile, used to make that claim. I, I would shy away from it in all respects. Um, but I, I do think that Stalin is a close reader of Marx on equality. And his views of equality uh are are, are sort of doctrinaire, uh as are uh, as are Lenin's in that respect. And I, and I try to show that in, in the in the book. There's so much here. Let's try and get up to
0: date and talk about post, shall we say, Tocqueville or post-founder American theories on equality. We did a show a month or two ago with Daniel Chandler. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He's a young English political philosopher. He has a new book Mm. out, which is a big hit, Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? It's very much based on the ideas and work of, of John Rawls, the 20th century American Theorist of equality—is that fair? And and, and is Rawls an important figure intellectually and in, in your history of equality?
1: You know, I don't know the Chandler book, and I've just written it down. I'm in order. Yeah, I think you'll order. find it very interesting. He's good. There, I'm sure he is, and they're you know they're coming out fast and furious now. I can barely keep up, and this is a good sign, I think. Um, so Rawls is clearly an important figure. I mean, he's the most important you know theorist of the of the welfare state. Um, I don't write about him a lot in this book, in part because other people have the one point where he does appear uh, in my book with with you know any consideration, is is to point out that uh, Rawls and he's by no means atypical here, uh, though fundamentally concerned with. Uh, equalizing uh, uh, society within the nation state doesn't have a whole lot to say about the relations between them. And I think this is symptomatic of a kind of Western blindness uh, vis-a-vis uh, the rest of the world, and so the very same time, the welfare state is being constructed and putting uh, massive resources into it. Global inequality, uh, inequality rather, continues to grow uh, in the in the post-war period, right up until about 1980. And that's the the point. And then it's
0: been dramatically now. changed. So.
1: Yeah, and that—that that is, I think, also a point worth making. This is a point that Branko uh, Milanovic and others uh, have have made. That you know, uh, we we talk a lot about inequality right now, and rightfully so, because it's a major social problem um, within countries, and particularly within the prosperous nations in the United States. But actually, the. Global equality has been falling um, pretty dramatically since uh, since the 1980s uh, as a function of a total number of people in the world. And we pulled hundreds of millions of people out of, of poverty in that same period. And so there's a silver lining to what is uh, or what can be at least a, a darker story. So, so
0: do you disagree or does some, are, are there people who would disagree with Marx that we all have different needs and abilities? I mean, I, I don't know anyone who would necessarily disagree with that and does Rawls have his Marxist cake and his equality at the same time by suggesting that this veil of ignorance that we all have to imagine um, not being losers I get into trouble for using that word mm-hmm. but for not being successful and so that's the kind of I guess the almost the Hobbesian foundations of, of Rawlsian egalitarianism
1: yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's at, at odds uh, to some degree with, with human nature, right, or human psychology when we all live in uh, Lake Wobegon and we, uh, you know, we're better drivers and we're better looking and we're better students than, uh, than, than we really are. At least that's our fantasy. And so I think when we play that uh, game with the veil of ignorance, we always wager that we'll come out uh, better uh, than our, uh, our neighbors and we, uh, we like our chances.
0: But what, coming back to this idea of you're critical of Marx, you, well, I, I'm, it's an implicit criticism of Marx because you suggest that he's not a big fan of equality. Are you suggesting he's wrong? That, that each the that different no, no, uh, and needs and wants and that any good society would be made up of groups of people with, with more money, more power, more
1: influence, more
0: fame, more happiness?
1: I don't think he's wrong about that at all. And in fact, in that, to that extent, I, I, I agree with him. Uh, I just think many people don't see that in him uh, and they don't uh, uh, accept that. They, they, um, they don't appreciate his own understanding that human beings uh, not only are not equal in their uh, needs and their capacities, uh, but in their, their outcomes. And I think there's a view that Marx would somehow level the playing field at the end. And it's not at all clear uh, that that's what would happen.
0: MLK comes up in your book, he seems to come up in everyone's book uh, these days, and his arc of justice, what does, well, we've done many shows on mm-hmm. MLK, one with Lynn Twist on what Gandhi, Mandela and MLK can teach us about living a committed life, what can MLK in your view teach us about living an, e- an equal life or an egalitarian mm-hmm. life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, the, I have to say it was for me a real revelation uh, to do this last chapter because I steeped myself in King's writings kind of from beginning to end. And um, he's he's dialoguing, engaging with so many of the people that that come uh, before him in, in my book. And so he's really sort of bringing together so many different ideas uh, about equality but the, the, one of the emphasis i place on him is this idea of the uh, uh of the arc of history bending towards justice which is an idea that grows out of uh, 19th century liberal protestantism and of course he makes uh, his own in the uh uh in his speeches and writings and then that's picked up later by uh, obama and others um and it's it's a it's a rearticulation uh, and a kind of doubling down on an idea that actually grows out of the 18th century. And that is the idea that, that human societies are steadily getting uh, more equal and that e- the equality will sort of flow outward and downward. I, I call this a cascade, a thesis or a ca- cascade metaphor like water falling over rocks and pool at the bottom and then spread to larger numbers of people. Uh, I think to some degree, Tocqueville shared that idea of a kind of providential, um, you know, uh, logic to human history. And many people did until relatively recently. King uh, gives it new power uh, and emphasis. And, you know, of course, he makes clear that even if the arc of uh, humanity bends towards justice, it doesn't just happen. You've got to bend the arc and you've got to go out into the streets and make it happen. Uh, But he imbues people with an optimism that can that can happen. And I would argue that until relatively recently, that was there. Um, In my concluding chapter, I cite all these books that use the phrase the struggle for equality, the march for equality in the titles, suggesting that, you know, we're still headed in that direction. Recent events in the last decade or so maybe have disabused us of uh, uh, not of the notion itself, but of how easy it might be uh, to get uh, get forward. And um, so I think, you know, we're uh, we're a little bit uh, jaded in, in that respect. Um, but realizing how often that dream was invoked and how recently and how in many ways human beings have uh, creatively reinterpreted equality across the centuries can give us some material to do so going forward, to think about uh, equality anew for uh, this this next century ahead.
0: Darren, you've written... Uh, extensively uh, about other subjects. A, a lot of people be most familiar with your work on happiness. I think that was one of your prize-winning books. We had a, a Berkeley economist. I'm sure you know his work, Je- Brad DeLong, on the show recently, um, a very influential economist. He has a new book out, Slouching Towards Utopia, in which he seems to suggest, and, and maybe I'm not sure if you're familiar with his book, but he seems to suggest that, as the world has become more prosperous and perhaps more equal, we've actually become more miserable. What's your sense of equality and happiness? You've written this major new book on equality. You wrote a a major book on happiness. Do you think equality actually makes us happy? Or do you think that It's promise actually makes us miserable. I mean, that would be Rousseau's take. (laughs) Uh,
1: Or Hobbes. Um, Well, I've got to tip my hat to you, Andrew. I think you put your finger on some interesting questions. And I originally intended to have a... Uh, a section in my concluding chapter on happiness and in its relation to equality. And to be perfectly honest, I I kept being sort of befuddled by the data. You'd like to find that, you know, unequal societies are, are profoundly unhappy. And I think there are ways in which that's clear. I think that, you know, the the deaths of despair that um, um, Angus. Deaton talks about and others are a reflection of the deep unhappiness in a profoundly unequal contemporary America. But then, you know, there are other cases that that don't quite pan out uh, so easily, and um, um, you know, I'm not sure yet how to feel about this, whether that means that human beings don't want to live equal. I will say, you know, kind of parenthetically as an aside, I mean, I sometimes uh, think about academic departments, which you know, by and large, are pretty equal places. Yes, there's status differences differences in their assistant and associate and full professors. Yeah. but by and large, we're equal places. And we fight like cats and dogs yeah, all the time the smallest measured. little things. <laughs> and Tocqueville himself, as you know, had a theory about this, right? That the more equal human beings become, the more they will exaggerate their minor differences, right? Um, and I think there's some, some truth to that. I think Hobbes is also a great theorist of this. On the other hand, I think it's also clear, and again, I would point to our contemporary world that really profound differences in wealth in power in access uh in education uh in the 21st century context not a medieval one uh where you can justify this with metaphysics lead to some really serious uh uh misery and and and, and perverse life outcomes that mm. um that we're living with right now
0: yeah we need symbolism perhaps of a post-nation state world maybe we could go back to the middle ages let's end it's a fascinating conversation darren and we gone along we've gone long on it so i've got to end but it's i'll have to have you back on the show um you end of course as all books do with the future how to reimagine equality in an age of inequality um we had another historian on the show and again Mm. three years Mm. ago another guy i'm sure you're very familiar with walter scheidel who teaches at stanford uh, he had an influential book out uh, called The Great Leveler Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. I'm sure you've read it with a great deal of care. He seems to argue that inequality only goes away in massive, either natural disasters or political revolutions. Do you agree, or, or, or are there peaceful ways of reimagining inequality mm-hmm. and equality? to make our, our century more equal than it, it is at the moment.
1: Yeah, I, I have a lot of admiration for Scheidel's work. I actually invoke him in the conclusion when I think about some of the more pessimistic scenarios. And one of the points he makes, as you just say, is that, you know, the, the points in human history that, that have become more equal are usually attended by state failure and revolution and, uh, and plague, the, the four um, horsemen of the apocalypse, as he puts it. I think, though, that he undervalues political will, and this is something that somebody he he, he draws on a lot. Uh, Thomas Piketty makes clear, mm-hmm. and he talks about the Great Compression in the twentieth century, this period between roughly the First World War and about 1970, when you see at least in in the global North shrinking income and and wealth inequalities. And yes. You've got two world wars and you have a plague uh, and you have a revolution and state failure, but you also have political will. You have the New Deal, right? And you have the welfare state and you have um, citizens willing to contribute, you know, tax income to uh, ameliorate the condition of their neighbors. Um, And I think that matters. I I think that matters an awful lot. And I think, if anything, Scheidel underplays that uh, part of the equation. And I would be uh, a little bit more on the side of political agency here.
0: So you're in the Piketty camp. We had uh, Zuckman on the show too, another economist at Berkeley who's been very influenced by Piketty, who also addresses all these issues. He just simply talks about raising taxes. Is that, are there political or perhaps economic? Fixes to this? I mean, yeah. We- I
1: mean, you know. So now I'm I'm getting beyond my pay grade. I I I have immense uh, respect for uh, Tomà Piketty. I think he's done you know more than anyone alive to to draw our attention to issues. I don't always agree with the solutions. Uh, and and here I'm you know I'm not a big Uh, tax guy. Although, look, uh, um, you know, only recently, within decades, uh, people in this country, in the United States, uh, paid a lot more in taxes. And I think, you know, we were better off for it. And um, uh, I can imagine a a more equitable tax uh, structure in this country. But I'm not a policy guy either. And I'll be the first to say, hey, look, you know, leave the past to historians and the future uh, and the present to some, some people who know better than I do.